Our passage this morning is Acts 16, verse 11 to the end of the chapter. So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a race course, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Tyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she, had, when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she pre prevailed upon us. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination, met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Falling after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night 
and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Now when the day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen, saying, Release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, and have thrown us into prison, and now are they sending us away secretly? No, indeed, but let them come themselves and bring us out. The policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans, and they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. They went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for giving it to us that we might know how to live and to see how you have worked in history and brought about your church. And we thank you, Father, that it's you who open our hearts so that we might believe. And Father, we just pray now for Tom that you would give him clarity and help him as he speaks. May your spirit speak through him. And may we open our hearts to listen and obey you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, brother. What an amazing passage. Good morning. Our, our passage this morning marks another milestone in the advance of the gospel in the first generation of the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, this was the first time that the gospel of Christ came to the European continent. And the first local community of believers that God then created on the European continent was in the city of Philippi. Uh, And that's the city in which all of the events that we see in this passage unfold. Last time in the early part of the second missionary journey of Paul, after Paul had uh, gone from home base here at Syrian Antioch and then had gone over to uh, kind of the south central region of Asia Minor, back to this back to the churches that had been planted during his first missionary journey to visit them and to build them up, God then sent sent Paul and Silas on a beeline from that region of Lyconia all the way to the far west coast of Asia Minor to Troas. And when they tried to uh, deviate from that beeline, the Holy Spirit prevented them. He blocked them. They wanted to go north to Bithynia here, and and the Spirit didn't let them. God had told them, go straight straight west. So it was clear that God had an agenda. And when they got to Troas, they found out what that agenda is, because um, in that city, Paul received the vision of the night in which he saw a man of Macedonia appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so at that point... Paul and, and the, the missionary team realized what God's, what God's plan was. And so as we pick up Luke's narrative in chapter 16, verse 11, Paul and his co-workers now set sail from Troas to, to the European continent, to Macedonia, and they, 
they make a quick stop at this little island called Samothrace that's on the way, and then they continue on to the port, port city of Neapolis. From there, they go through a, a they do a 10-mile walk, roughly, through a mountain pass that brings them here to Philippi. Now, uh, for you history buffs, uh, Philippi had been named by and after Philip of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great. After Rome's rise to power and during the reign of Caesar Augustus, Philippi became an official Roman colony whose leaders then answered directly to the Caesar, to the emperor of Rome. Philippi had a, had a notable place in military history because it was in that city that Mark Antony, the, the armies of Mark Antony and Octavian uh, caught up with and overthrew the armies of Brutus and Cassius, who had been two of the key uh, instigators of the assassination of the previous emperor, Julius Caesar. So by Paul's day, this city had a lot of history, it had a lot of importance in the Roman Empire, and it had become an important trade city along that vital trade route between Europe and Asia. Now, Paul and Silas uh, first added, they, they added to their team uh, on the way to Philippi because when they started, it was just Paul and Silas. When they came to Derby there in South Central Asia, that was Timothy's hometown, and that's where they met Timothy, and he joined them. And he became an exceedingly important person in Paul's ministry from that point forward. It also appears that Luke joined them when they got to Troas, that jumping off point to cross over into Macedonia. Because from the point that, from the time that they reached Troas, Luke's pronouns now become first person, we and us, instead of they and them. Um, as we've seen previously, it was Paul's very consistent practice whenever he came into a, a new city along the, one of these, as they made their way on these missionary journeys, he would first go into the synagogue of the Jews, and then after staying there for a few Sabbaths and preaching, showing them the necessity from the Old Testament that, that the Christ, the long-promised Christ, had to suffer and be raised from the dead, and that this Christ, this Jesus of Nazareth, is that Christ. After doing that in the synagogue for a few weeks, he would then turn to the Gentiles and minister the gospel to the Gentiles. But Philippi had no synagogue. Now, that seems surprising because of the, how influential the city was. Um, but Kent Hughes explains in his commentary on Acts that according to Jewish, Jewish tradition, there had to be a quorum of at least 10 male heads of household before, before a synagogue could be formed in a city. And if that requirement could not be met, the faithful were then to meet, quote, under the open sky near a river or sea. So that explains why Paul went where he went when he got to Philippi, right? The nearest major body of water was outside the city gates of Philippi, and it was the Gangetus River. It was likely on the banks of that river that as we read in the verses that follow, that Paul and his co-workers came upon a group of women on the Sabbath who were worshipers of the, true, the one true God, and they were gathered there on the Sabbath for prayers and for readings from the law and the prophets. It's very, very interesting that it was just women who were there. The first convert to Christ in Macedonia, and thus the first convert in all of Europe, was not a man. It was a woman. 
a woman named Lydia. Lydia was a successful and respected businesswoman. Luke tells us that she was from Thyatira, which was actually back there in Asia Minor. And so here's a woman who is, her, her home city is Thyatira, but she owns a home in Philippi. So she's a woman of substantial means. He tells us that she was a, quote, seller of purple fabrics. And I started looking at that and found that to be fascinating. The word that's translated purple actually comes from the name of a specific species of shellfish. Say that three times real fast. Uh, and that, that shellfish, that, that unusual shellfish was necessary to create purple dye. And because you had to harvest shellfish to make the dye, that dye was costly. And the fabrics made from it were costly. This woman knew where the money was. Okay? And uh, royal garments were often made with purple fabric. And if you remember back in Exodus in the Old Testament in the pattern for the tabernacle and the priestly garments, the most, precious, the most precious fabrics that were used in the innermost curtains of the tabernacle and in the, priest, the high priest garments were of blue and, purple and, blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. Verse 14 tells us that as Paul and his friends proclaimed the gospel of Jesus to this group of God-fearing women, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. God opened her heart. Now, this is perfectly in keeping with what we saw in Acts 13, 48, where Paul said in Pisidian Antioch, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. In 1 Corinthians 1, 18, Paul says, for the word of the cross is, foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is only the Holy Spirit working in the heart of an individual who can make the gospel intelligible to a human being. Because the sin nature of man is so corrupt that, that, that the beautiful gospel is utter nonsense to those in whose hearts the Spirit is not working. It's God who draws. Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him in John 6. Lydia and her whole household believed and they were baptized. Immediately after being reborn into the family of God, Lydia said to Paul, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. Now, some of your translations in some of your translations, it says that she, she said to Paul, if you have judged me to be a believer, in other words, if you found me to be a Christian, but the word can mean either to believe or to be faithful and trustworthy, and I take it as the latter here. Um, I don't believe that, that she was asking Paul to test her salvation, but rather to see if, she, if, if what could be known about her indicated that she was a trustworthy person. Throughout the New Testament, one of the clearest demonstrations of genuine openness to the gospel was hospitality toward the bearers of the gospel. Go all the way back to when Jesus sent out the, the 70 in pairs. He said, if they, you know, if they don't welcome you, if they don't show you hospitality, take your peace back and shake the dust off your feet and go somewhere else. Um, and we see this throughout the New Testament. 
By the end of this passage, we find that Lydia's hospitality toward Paul and his co-workers became hospitality toward all the believers in Philippi. And her home, by the end of the passage, that's the gathering place for all the new believers that God raises up during this, this very chapter. It would be impossible to overstate the vital role and importance of godly women in the Holy Spirit's creation and nurture of the early church. That shouldn't surprise us. Among the followers of Jesus during his earthly, earthly ministry, it was the women who steadfastly remained with Jesus on the night of his arrest and the day of his crucifixion while the apostles scattered. It was the women who sought to attend to Christ's body on that Sunday and found the grave empty and the stone, the stone rolled away and the grave empty. It was women who first beheld the resurrected Jesus and then ran to tell the other disciples. Now, it was a woman who hosted the missionaries and the very first believers on the European continent. Verse 16 tells us that as Paul's team was going to that same place of prayer at the riverside outside the city gates of Philippi, they were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and who had been, quote, bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Now, this causes a lot of heartburn to some people, and I don't want to sidetrack the important message of this chapter, but, but I want to spend a little bit of time on this issue. Uh, Fortune-telling means revealing something about the future. And this woman was under the control of a demonic spirit that gave her the ability to foretell certain events, limited events, that would happen to individuals who paid her for her service. There's nothing in the passage to indicate that this was just trickery. Okay? And many modern psychics and tarot card readers and others claim to be able to do this, but what I want to point out is that in Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10, the one true God says this. He says, I am God, and there is no other like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish my good pleasure. It's very clear. God declares of himself with no ambiguity at all that he is set apart from any created being in his omniscience, that is, his knowledge of all things and events, past, present, and future, and in his, in his omnipotence, his absolute control over all things and events, past, present, and future. So how do we explain what's going on with this woman? Well, whatever knowledge Satan or a demon may have regarding something that has not yet happened, there are two things we can be absolutely sure of regarding that unusual knowledge. First, it is granted by God alone to accomplish his purposes and to advance his glory in his creation. Secondly, the person who has been granted such knowledge has zero control over the events that, that are foreseen. Only God controls those events. God used a donkey to talk to Balaam. And he used Balaam, who was a godless, false prophet, to speak true things about Israel and what would happen to Israel. That didn't make 
Balaam a true prophet. It meant God used him to accomplish his will, period. It's very clear in the book of Job that Satan can do absolutely nothing without God's permission. And so that cer certainly applies to Satan's subordinates. And we, know, and we know, last thing I'll say about this is that it was mentioned this morning, Romans 8, 28, or in, that passage was mentioned, but in Romans 8, 28, we know that God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that includes the activity of Satan and of his demons. So who's in control? Only God. Only God. Um, all right. Another very instructive point in this episode involving this slave girl that I want to mention is, is what she repeatedly and relentlessly kept crying out. Um, according to verse 17, she said, These men, Paul and Silas, Luke and Timothy, these men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Now, was that true or untrue? It was absolutely true. So why not let her keep saying it? I love the fact that Paul was annoyed. That means that I get to be annoyed sometimes, too. <laughs> it always gets my attention in the gospel accounts how often demons acknowledge true things about Jesus that the Jews were unwilling to accept. Demons have no confusion about who Jesus is and what he came to do. They believe that much, but they shudder when they recognize who they're dealing with. That's from James chapter 2. Um, Satan, however, is a master strategist, and he will do and say whatever is necessary to gain advantage and to protect that advantage even if the things that he is saying are true. I strongly suspect that the demonic spirit who had enslaved this young woman was corroborating Paul's message in order to accomplish a couple of things, at least. First, to direct attention, the, the demon was directing attention to the woman instead of to God's messengers. This was a distraction. Secondly, he was protecting that woman's ability to continue in her work of promising supernatural knowledge to people about their lives apart from any dependence on God. Now, that's a satanic goal, not a godly goal. See, if she had, if she had blatantly contradicted Paul and then his message had won the day, she'd have been out of a job. She ended up out of a job anyway. But she, she praised Paul and his co-workers in hopes that, I believe, in hopes that once they moved on to their next destination, she could keep doing what she had been doing. But, of course, God had much better plans for her. Many of those who were healed in the New Testament by Jesus and through the followers of Jesus were also redeemed by Jesus and brought out of death into life. I don't know. The text doesn't say that this woman came to faith, but I would not be the least bit surprised if we see her in the kingdom of God. When the girl's handlers, Kent Hughes calls them prophecy pimps, <laughs> when the girl's handlers figured out that they had just lost their gravy train, they decided it was time to shut the mouths of Paul and Silas. After seizing those two men and bringing them before the chief magistrates, the judges of the city, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion. 
being Jews and our proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or observe being Romans. Now that distinction that they're making is going to become very important later in the, in the passage. They're assuming that these Jewish men are not Roman citizens when in fact they are, as we'll find out. The magistrates tore the robes off of Paul and Silas and they had them beaten with rods and not just a few strokes, but many blows. I don't know what that feels like, but it sounds really awful. And then they tossed them into prison, commanding the jailer to, to uh, guard them securely. So the jailer put them in the darkest, remotest cell of the prison and he locked their feet in stocks not just chains, he locked them up in wood stocks that held their feet to the floor. Now, what, what do you think you and I would be doing if we ever found ourselves in that same situation? Arrested, falsely accused, badly beaten, tossed into a dark, dank dungeon with our feet stocked to the floor. Would, be, would we be praying and singing hymns of praise to God? That's what they were doing. And they had an audience. The other prisoners were paying close attention to the, the entirely unexpected behavior of these two men. <laughs> Beloved, this, this is how we as Christ's ambassadors make use of even the greatest hardship to turn all, all eyes to Christ alone. We do that by treating hardship as opportunity, by treating hardship as opportunity. And that opportunity simply does not present itself when things are going smoothly for us. People in comfortable situations are expected to be cheerful. But when people facing great hardship overflow with joy inexpressible and full of glory, as Peter talks about in 1 Peter 1. That brings glory to our God and it gets the attention of lost men and women as nothing else will. I often come back to, Paul, to Bob Deffenbaugh's simple statement that evangelism is praising God in the presence of unbelievers. I love that statement. It has helped me immensely. The one thing in this passage that... that uh, there's one thing that, that I would add to that based on this passage and it's simply no matter what. Praising God in the presence of, of unbelievers, no matter what. When we do that, our God who is mighty to save will use even the miserable likes of me to mightily save. And that applies to you as well. In the middle of that night in the, in the city of Philippi, God created a great earthquake, not a little tremor, a bona fide earthquake that shook the very foundations of that prison. And the chains that held not just Paul and Silas, but all of the prisoners in that prison fell to the floor and the stocks came open. Now, earthquakes by themselves don't break chains without maiming the people bound by them. So this was a miracle in every detail. I have no doubt that, we're, that we'll see a significant number of the other prisoners who were there that night in the kingdom of God. This was God showing off as only God is worthy and able to do. 
This kind of power has no existence except in the creator of all things. God's power is perfected. It is most perfectly put on display in our greatest weakness. One of the titles Bob suggested when we were, on Wednesday when we were talking about this sermon, one of the titles he suggested for this part of the passage is, When in Jail, Don't Post Bail. Now, that doesn't mean it's evil to, to be bailed out of jail. His point is that for the people of God, hardship is marvelous gospel opportunity. It is when we are most helpless to bring well-being to ourselves that God's power becomes most mightily displayed. Paul puts this very, very directly in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. He says, we have this treasure. And back up one verse, you find out what the treasure is. is the 2 Corinthians 4, it's amazing. The light, that's the word I was looking for, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's what we bear. That's what you and I bear in the world. And so he says, we have that treasure in earthen vessels, jars of clay. And what's true of jars of clay? Well, let's see, they're, they're easily chipped, they're easily cracked, they're easily broken. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? So that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from us. So we don't have to be in a hurry to get out of difficult situations. We don't have to be in a hurry to get out of circumstances that make us weak and vulnerable. That's when things start happening. Now, God may choose to show himself to others by delivering us from such hardship when we're helpless to deliver ourselves, or he may choose to leave us in the hardship, perhaps even to the point of death. But in either case, we can be very, very sure that he intends to show himself off through our response to the hardship. Our earnest desire should always be for God to withhold that deliverance until he's finished showing off through our response to the hardship in every way that he intends to. That calls for a lot of patience. Fortunately, God delights in granting that patience and providing that patience. Paul and Silas were clearly on board with this job description. In verse 27, Luke turns our attention to what God was doing that night in the heart of the jailer, and it is magnificent. <laughs> this is one of everybody's favorite stories in the New Testament. And since it's a little hard to sleep through a prison-shaking, chain-breaking earthquake, uh, the jailer was roused out of his sleep. He rushed toward the prison, but before he reached the entrance, he saw that the prison doors had been thrown open. His heart sank when he realized that the prisoners that were under his guard were likely not there anymore. He knew exactly what that meant for him. Instead of waiting for a humiliating and almost certainly torturous death at the hands of his Roman bosses, he drew his sword to take his own life. At that very moment, he heard a voice calling out to him loudly from inside the prison, speaking directly to him, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. It was the voice of Paul. 
Now, don't miss that, it, that when, when the jailer heard that voice, Paul couldn't see him and he couldn't see Paul. He's still outside the gate of the prison and Paul's in the remotest part of the prison, according to Luke. This is perfect timing. This is God doing another miracle. God gave Paul supernatural awareness and flawless timing, and he used Paul's loud appeal to save the life of that jailer. So the jailer called for torches to eliminate the situation, and he rushed into the prison. He fell down at the now liberated feet of Paul and Silas, trembling, trembling with fear. That dear man's fear, beloved, was no longer of what his Roman bosses might do to him. He had just met someone much more fearsome than that. His fear was of the one who had just caused this miraculous deliverance of his prisoners to happen while he was sleeping. After bringing Paul and Silas out of the prison, he said to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Again, he wasn't asking how he could avoid the punishment due to him from his Roman superiors. He was asking how he who had left the awful wounds of these two men untreated and had shackled them to the floor of the darkest, dankest cell in the prison could possibly be saved from the terrifying hand of their God. With greatest delight, with hearts overflowing with the grace that they themselves had already received in infinite measure from God and Christ, Paul and Silas gave this man the very greatest answer that any human being will ever hear. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. You and your household. I think the jailer got the hint about his household. He took Paul and Silas to his own home where they spoke the word of the Lord, the gospel of Christ to him together with all who were in his house. <laughs> And every person in that household believed and was saved that night, that very night. The man cleaned up and he dressed the men's wounds. And then he and his whole household were baptized in the wee hours of that glorious morning before dawn. Finally, the jailer, having believed in God with his whole household, set a meal before Paul and Silas and his family and his friends who had just joined the ranks of the redeemed of God, and they all rejoiced greatly while partaking of that meal. After all the wonderful events that unfolded that night in the jailer's house, Paul and Silas then willingly walked right back into that prison, presumably out of godly love and kindness toward their new brother in Christ, who surely would have been executed if they had simply left town. Since it's kind of hard to keep a prison-shaking, chain-breaking earthquake quiet, the jailer's employers had already heard by this point what had happened during the night. The magistrates who had so badly treated Paul and Silas the day before sent their policemen to tell the jailer to release the men and send them packing. Of course, this was not out of altruistic motives. It was out of fear. It was illegal to beat a Roman citizen and imprison a Roman citizen without due process. 
Paul and Silas realized that God had handed them a teachable moment, (laughs) yet another opportunity to be used by the Holy Spirit to convict lost and powerful men of sin and righteousness and judgment and redemption. So it says, Paul, verse 37, said to the emissaries who were sent by the magistrates, they have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans. And they have thrown us into prison, and now they are sending us away secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and bring us out. Paul was making sure that the Roman officials who had sent these low-level messengers to send them on their way didn't get to sidestep the accountability they had under their own legal system never to do what they had done the day before. Again, they knew very well that beating and imprisoning a Roman citizen without trial was illegal in the Roman Empire. So upon hearing Paul's words from their emissaries, the magistrates became profoundly afraid. If their own superiors found out about their gross violation of these men's rights as Roman citizens, they knew that they would find themselves in the same circumstance that they had put Paul and Silas in the day before. Maybe worse. They also realized that if they didn't release Paul and Silas, they'd have to deal with the God who had caused the earthquake and loosed the bonds of these men just hours earlier. By God's amazing grace, Paul and Silas held all the cards at this point. The magistrates did exactly as Paul demanded. They came personally to the prison and they begged Paul and Silas to quietly leave the city and to say no more about this whole incident. The beautiful conclusion to this great passage is in the last verse of chapter 16. It says, And they, Paul and Silas, went out of the prison, and they entered the house of Lydia, and when they saw the brethren there, they encouraged them and then departed. Again, these two men who had themselves experienced the greatest mercy that exists now pressed the violation of their own civil rights no further. They showed mercy to the men who had treated them so badly. They walked out of the gates of Philippi, but before heading to the next city, they stopped at the home of Lydia, where all their new brothers and sisters in the faith from Philippi had gathered no doubt having prayed throughout the previous night for Paul's and Silas's release. The arrival of these two freed prisoners brought very great encouragement to this newborn church. After a time of Christian fellowship that was no doubt filled with much praise to God, much rejoicing by the saints, Paul and Silas, Timothy and Luke, departed for the next important city of Macedonia, which is Thessalonica. The church that was born in Philippi that day, or in the days leading up to that, and then in big fashion that night, uh, became one of the congregations with the very closest ties to Paul and with the greatest affection for Paul, and vice versa. Paul later wrote to them in Philippians 4.15, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. And you yourselves also know, Philippians, 
that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit that increases to your account. Philippi, even in their poverty, poverty as we find in 2 Corinthians 8, even in their poverty, they gave generously for the support of Paul's ministry and then later for the support of Christians in Jerusalem. It's no stretch uh, to find ourselves greatly encouraged by a passage as wonderful as this one. There's much cause here for rejoicing. But I want to come back to the fact that encouragement is not God's only goal for including this event here. There's a challenge and a very powerful implied exhortation here that we must not miss. And it goes back to that humorous title that Bob suggested, When in Jail, Don't Post Bail. When God saved each person in this room who trusts in Jesus, God could have taken us home immediately. But he left us here for a reason, for a purpose, an excellent purpose that for us is life-defining. He left us here to carry on with the work of Jesus Christ to seek and save that which is lost and to build up the saved as true disciples and followers of Jesus until we breathe our final breath in these mortal bodies. One of the most powerfully useful ways that we keep that greatest of all commissions is by being willing to suffer for Christ's sake and to wait on God in the midst of that suffering, rejoicing all the while. Paul and Silas could have made a big show about their Roman citizenship when they were first arrested. Or if the events surrounding that arrest were too chaotic, they could have made a big show of their Roman citizenship while the jailer was clamping their feet to the floor of that Roman prison. But their first mention of their Roman citizenship comes after God released them from their bonds. Do you think that wasn't intentional? I believe it was both intentional and strategic and very, very instructive. American Christians in our generation seem often to be obsessively devoted to asserting or to reclaiming our rights to worship freely, to be able to apply our beliefs in our business transactions, to speak the truth of God in every place that we want to, and so on. But beloved, God never promised us such freedoms. Now, don't get me wrong. I both applaud and support organizations that work to protect the liberties of Christians in this country. But we need to recognize what God promised and what God didn't promise. And God never promised that we'd have it easy. In fact, he promised exactly the opposite. In John 15, Jesus said, they'll hate you because they hated me. And they hate me because they do not know the one who sent me. He said, there'll come a time when people will kill you believing that they are doing a service to God. If we spend our lives clinging to promises that God never made, assuming that it is our right to live and to speak 
as Christians protected, protected by the institutions of our culture, we will squander countless opportunities to be mightily used by God. If, on the other hand, we treat every hardship that we suffer for Christ's sake as a marvelous opportunity to put Christ on display, then we'll find that those opportunities are everywhere. We should rejoice when we're delivered from hardship and persecution that we suffer for Christ's sake. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter 4. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on us when that happens. That's what the disciples did. They rejoiced. And we should rejoice in the midst of every hardship and persecution that we suffer for Christ. If, if your response to that exhortation is to go on a guilt trip because <laughs> you can't imagine yourself uh, responding the way Paul and Silas did in this passage when they were chained to the floor of a dungeon, then there's another exhortation here that is most important of all. The episodes that we find in both testaments of God's word in which his people demonstrated extraordinary courage and fortitude in the midst of great threat and hardship are not there to drive us to self-flagellation. They are there to turn our eyes to Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of glory. The things, passages like this are in the Bible to drive us to trust in the one who always his, enables his children to do what he requires of us. King David did not find in himself the courage to go up against a giant with nothing but a, a sling and a bag of rocks. Paul and Silas did not find in themselves the courage to be filled with joy in a dark dungeon. These great true stories remind us over and over again that it is God alone who is our refuge and strength, our ever-present help in time of trouble. I'll conclude by directing our attention, yours and mine, yet again to the last thing Jesus said to his gathered disciples in John 16, before he turned his attention to his father and prayed for his disciples just before his arrest. He said, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. Not in you, not in the world, not in the culture, in me. And then he said, in the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Not you, I. Our trust is in Jesus. Loving Father, we thank you that, that what you call us to do, you enable, you and you alone enable us to do. The power that you've made to dwell within us is the very power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him above all authority, every dominion and every power and every name that is named both in this age and in the age to come. That power you have put in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. So we walk around day by day filled with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Our ability to do what you set before us to do never, never comes from us. But we always, always have what we need to do it. All the glory, all the credit goes to, to you.
all of our, all of our praise goes to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.